This is Central High School, Little Rock, Arkansas. Troops, which for nearly three weeks lined the sidewalk here in front of the high school under orders to keep the colored students out, have been replaced now. And their orders to comply with the law, which means let the Negro students in if they come in. On September 25th, 1957, nine black students were finally able to first step foot inside Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. They were escorted in by members of the National Guard and the Army's 101st Airborne Division. Three years earlier, the U.S. Supreme Court had officially ruled that segregated schools were unconstitutional. The Little Rock Nine had tried multiple times to enter Central High in 1957, but each time they were met with mob violence. Telephone calls have come to me at the mansion in a constant stream, and the expressions of awe are the fear of disorder and violence in this attempt at forcible integration of Central High School. On September 2nd, just before what was supposed to be the students' first day at school, Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus ordered the state's National Guard to ring the school and block the black students' entrance. They did so for three weeks, in defiance of a federal court ruling that the guard be removed. And then on September 25th, 1957, President Dwight Eisenhower took the historic step of federalizing the National Guard. He also sent army troops to Little Rock as well. And the students finally were able to go to class. Such an extreme situation has been created in Little Rock. This challenge must be met. And with such measures as will preserve to the people as a whole their lawfully protected rights in a climate permitting their free and fair exercise. In the present case, the troops are there pursuant to law solely for the purpose of preventing interference with the orders of the court. Governor Faubus was enraged. We are now an occupied territory. Evidence of the naked force of the federal government is here apparent in these unsheathed bayonets in the backs of schoolgirls. But so, well, I mean, you're guarded all the time. It's not even like a school, hardly. I mean, every place you walk, there's somebody telling you to go on or don't stand there, something like that. Not like That's that. right, because you, there's no certain place that you can go without someone pushing you on or saying, you can't stand here or you can't do this or you can't do that. The soldiers give these orders to the students? Well, uh, they have passed bulletins around today. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And those were the voices of white Central High students expressing the injustice of being told where to stand, what to do, and where they were allowed to be. Of course, this is exactly the treatment that black Americans had been living under in the segregated South for a century. Little Rock's Central High is also the story most Americans know about the earliest efforts at school integration in this country. But it's not the first. 
there are others that came earlier. And one of them is almost entirely forgotten today. It's the story of what happened in the tiny mountain town of Clinton, Tennessee. And joining me now from Nashville to tell us that story is Rachel Louise Martin. She's a historian and writer, and her new book is A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. Rachel, welcome to On Point. Hi, I am so excited to be here today. Okay, so Clinton, Tennessee. Tell us what the town was like in 1956. On the one hand, it was a fairly small place. There were only a couple thousand people who lived there, and it was on the edge of Tennessee's coal country. On the other hand, it was about seven miles from the site of the first Tennessee Valley Authority project, Norris Dam, and it was also seven miles from Oak Ridge, which was one of the Manhattan sites that helped create the atomic bomb during World War II. So it was a very connected and yet isolated place all all at once. Mm. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about Oak Ridge later in the hour because uh, it's interesting that there was a very large federal site um, right next to Clinton. What were the attitudes of the residents there, um, you know, in in the mid-20th century about race and segregation? Most folks, most of the white folks around Clinton like to think of themselves as being pretty moderate for the South. It wasn't a place where the most extreme or most violent forms of segregation flourished very openly. And yet at the same time, if black Clintonians went to the Llewellyn Miller department store, they couldn't try on any clothes. And if they bought something and it didn't fit, they could not return it. They could not sit on the bottom floor of the local theater. All of those sorts of rules still govern their lives. And they still attended separate schools, which for the teenagers in Clinton meant that they actually got bused out of county in order to go to high school. Hmm. So they believed themselves to be relatively tolerant, but still fully embraced separate but equal, which, of course, Brown v. Board had struck down in 1954. So Can you tell me the story then of how black parents uh, in the community decided to test whether they could use a Supreme Court ruling to send their children to uh, the mostly white school in Clinton? Black parents in town had been fighting for equality in education since about 1865 when the Civil War ended. They had founded multiple different institutions for their kids sometimes building their schools by hand to make sure that their students could go to school somewhere. In 1940, there had been no black high school available to their children. So only the kids who had parents who could afford to send them away to boarding school got to go to high school. They had threatened desegregation in 1940, which meant the county school board began busing them out to a very bad high school one county away. At that point, um, the parents actually brought a lawsuit in 1950 saying this situation is inherently unequal. It was filed about the same time as the cases that would become Brown versus Board of Education. To equalize things, the county decided to send the kids into Knoxville to a much better high school. 
Uh, but it's still, the parents argued, put an undue burden on their children. They couldn't participate in any extracurriculars. They, If the weather was bad, they couldn't get to school, the roads would wash out, all of those sorts of problems. Mm. So when Brown is handed down, the parents with their partners in the NAACP reactivate the court case and argue that the situation where their kids are getting bused to Knoxville is one of those things that is inherently unequal. At that moment, the federal judge agrees with them. And then he said, you must desegregate by the following semester, which was August of 1956. Mm -hmm. So 12 black students then enrolled in the high school in Clinton. Um, What happened at first, on the first day? Because, again, the year later, uh, you know, it it would be what happened in Little Rock that truly horrified um, the nation and, and captured the nation's attention. So what happened the first day in 1956 in Clinton? The first day was... I think a very interesting contrast. Everybody is kind of testing out the waters. And so there are some protesters outside the school. No one's really sure how many it depended on who was counting. Somewhere around 50 to 75 folks were out there. Some of the kids, the teenagers were holding signs, uh, those sorts of things. Um, They actually, when the black students walk up to the school doors, everybody goes, absolutely silent instead of shouting, which some of the black students found at least as eerie as if they had been shouting the expected slurs. But nevertheless, the kids get through the doors without too much hassle. And when they get in there, some of them think it goes really well. We'll be talking with Joanne Allen Boyce later. She was elected vice president of her homeroom. Some other kids have conversations with their white peers. They talk about how their white friends actually or might become friends. They smile at them. A couple of the boys actually come out and tell a journalist, I think it's going so well, they might let us try out for the basketball team. Hmm. But then by that afternoon, things start to disintegrate. And by the evening, there's a massive segregationist rally downtown. Okay. So tell me more about what began that... uh Uh, that disintegration? I think a lot of people in the town did not believe desegregation would actually happen. Um, I, I think it was so incomprehensible. Segregation had seemed like such an absolutely unassailable tenet of Southern life that many people had stayed home that first morning thinking there was no way the black students would actually be allowed inside. And then when they were, the segregationist movement had been organizing since the ruling had been handed down the previous January. About 500 local residents had signed a petition protesting desegregation. There were already some nascent white supremacist organizations getting going. There was already an active Klan in the community. And so when the kids actually make it through the front door, I think everyone panicked and began moving really fast to try to stop this. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we have to take a quick break, Rachel. But when we come back, we're going to talk about what happened then um, after that white panic essentially set in in Clinton, Tennessee. Our guest today is Rachel Louise Martin. Her new book is called A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. And we have an excerpt of it at our website, onpointradio.org. We'll have much more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today, Rachel Louise Martin joins us. She's a historian who's out with a new book titled A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. It's about the attempts to desegregate the high school in Clinton, Tennessee, a year before the better-known Little Rock Nine that took place in Arkansas uh, the following year. So now we're looking at 1956 here and uh, and 57. But, uh, Rachel, you had talked about how the response from the white residents in Clinton at first, on the first day those 12 black students uh, went to school, uh, was muted at the beginning. But then by the end of that day, and as the week progressed, things became explosive, in part because of the entrance of overt racist groups in Clinton. And so I want to talk a little bit about one of the key figures there. His name is John Casper, and uh, he's he was a neo-Nazi and a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And here he is speaking to a white citizens council in Kentucky in 1957. The argument simply does not hold that the white race, being a minority, rather being a majority in the United States, should turn over to a group of people only removed from slavery 80 years and only removed from the jungle by a few hundred years, turn over to them the control of our entire civilization. Now, again, I want to note that Casper was an overt racist and Klan member, so he uses awful uh, language, as you can hear. But we felt it was important to have people hear firsthand 
what folks like him were saying, especially because they tied their white supremacy directly to what they believed uh, were the laws that should be kept in place, the laws around segregating schools. So here again is Casper speaking in Kentucky. In 11 years, in every southern state, the segregation laws we are fighting for today were written, every one of them, by the Ku Klux Klan, which saved us out. And the men who stood face to face at Chickamauga, Braxton Bragg and General Thomas, if they didn't have a principle to fight and die for, if they said, well, we'll just let this thing go on, every single one of us here tonight would be mulattoes and not white. Every one of us. Rachel, who was John Casper and what role did he play in turning the Clinton-Tennessee response into um, you know, an explosive and horrific one. Yeah, gosh. John Casper is quite a character. He was originally from New Jersey. Uh, he had what appears to be a fairly troubled childhood. He was repeatedly kicked out of schools and put into corrective organizations. His parents got him through that and got him into Columbia. He actually graduated from Columbia and attempted to enroll in the armed services, but was deemed 4F, which means he was not acceptable. I'm not positive why. It could be anything from he had flat feet to they did not think he was mentally stable. Um, But... When that happened, he had become an acolyte of the fascist poet Ezra Pound. Mm, mm-hmm. And he carried on a long-term correspondence with Pound that lasted for years, in which Pound instructed him on all aspects of his life, who to, who to befriend, how to use his business as he opened up a bookstore in honor of Pound in New York City and then in D.C., At some point along in there, he also got to know a man named Asa Carter. Asa Carter was, would become one of Governor George Wallace's speechwriters. He was a very well-known white supremacist and fascist in his own right. And he told uh, John Casper about what was happening in Clinton. as I was doing this research, though, my interpretation of Casper's role in the Clinton story ended up changing. Uh-huh. When I first got started, everybody talked about him as the catalyst or the Pied Piper that brought this trouble to town. But as I looked at it, first of all, he's an Ivy League educated Yankee walking into Appalachia. So that puts him on unstable soil to begin with. <laughs> he showed up the Saturday before desegregation. He was arrested less than 24 hours later, and he stayed in the local jail until that Thursday. By that Thursday, there were already thousands of people in the streets, Uh white folks rioting. And Casper did a few keynotes. He talked about himself as the leader of the movement, but the locals jettisoned him pretty fast. They actually bombed his headquarters in December, the local Klan bans him from all meetings in the spring. The White Citizen Citizens Council bans him from their meetings in the spring. So he he liked to think he was in charge, but 
I think a lot of the locals thought otherwise. Yeah, I mean, it's quite something to be even too broken for the Klan. Um, but <laughs> it's, but it's a new measure, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> but so, but this is an important point though, because as you know, as we Americans today look back in history. Um, we tend to gravitate towards these very strong narratives of individuals, right, having had this outsized impact on how people think and behave. It's kind of easier for us to process history that way rather than facing the more distasteful and horrific truth that it's from what you're describing, even though the uh, the response in Clinton at first was muted, there was already sufficient racism in town for thousands of people without you know, the encouragement of a Klan member to turn around and um, violently respond to black students trying to get an education to the point that they dynamited the school. Yeah, we love to have very clear heroes who are better than we could ever be. And we love to have very clear villains who are worse than we could ever be. And one of the things I discovered while writing this book is that most history is written by ordinary people who are making choices with how they are going to treat the other folks around them. And that means we are all responsible for what is happening in our towns, in our schools, in our societies. We are the history makers. It's not about the folks who end up on monuments or giving us horrible sound bites. To play on air. Mm-hmm. It's about what everyday folks are doing. Yeah, uh, and you know the the mirror image of those everyday folks who are who turn hateful are the everyday folks who put their lives on the line in order to stand up for their rights as human beings and Americans. Right. So, I want to now introduce Joanne Allen Boyce into the conversation. Uh, Today, she joins us from Los Angeles, but she was one of the 12 black students who went to Clinton High School. And by the way, she's authored um, a YA book about her experience. It's called This Promise of Change, One Girl's Story in the Fight for School Equality. Miss Boyce, welcome to On Point. Thank you. Glad to be with you. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, the the year— your life before you went to Clinton High School and were one of the first brave young people to, to desegregate the high school. What was it like living there? Well, I lived in a primarily all-black community. Um, we didn't have a, a lot of things to do as kids, so we kind of made up our own uh, games and and um, hung out together, usually around church. We could sit on the church steps and play games. Um, uh, It was a very quiet, um, very um, communicable um, community. Everybody got along really well. Um, Most of our parents worked either in housekeeping or working in car shops, uh, cleaning up cars, that kind of thing. Didn't have a, a lot of money, but um, we dressed nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, over the last few days, I, I was actually watching a lot of the uh, the television footage from uh, from Little Rock, 
which happened mm-hmm. the the year later, and I was particularly focusing in on the incredible faces of bravery from the the Little Rock Nine, right. you know, and and how their faces are all they're just unmoved. All they want is to go to school, right? Uh, and I, I, you know, and I just had to keep reminding myself, these are teenagers, um, and so I, I wanted to know, like, okay, what was happening behind? that face of bravery. How did you actually feel, uh, Miss Boyce, on the, on the inside that first day that you stepped into high school at Clinton? Well, to be honest, I wasn't actually fearful as much as I just had anxiety about going to a new place. It could have been an all-black school, and I would have felt the same way, just anxious, um, hoping that the day would go well and that we make new friends and that uh, this was going to work, that uh, our little town had shown that it was fairly tolerant over time and uh, that uh, desegregation would uh, just be maybe a week or two of getting used to it and um uh, then it would be okay. Of course, I was highly disappointed. Mm. Um, On the first day, um, it wasn't as bad as the second and third, Um, but you felt the tension within the classrooms. Um, Although, as uh, Rachel mentioned earlier, thank you, Rachel, that I had been uh, nominated for the homeroom uh, vice president Vice President, and that was very um, exciting. It was uh, surprising, and it was done by one of the girls who had approached us uh, and in a friendly manner and is, had spoken to us. So um, that first day was not as bad as the second and third because by then the crowd started to grow. Yeah. And uh, we felt the, the tension on the inside mm. even more. Um, can you remind me how old you were at the time? I was 14. You were 14? Yes. I, I, I entered school early. Um, <laughs> I graduated early, and I entered high school at uh, 14. I turned 15 shortly after um, in September, so it wasn't a, a long period of time that I was 14. Oh, I, I honestly, uh, Miss Boyce, I am in awe because, again, just thinking of a 14-year-old um, putting herself, <laughs> you know, on the line for justice is is amazing. Now, given the fact that you were 14, it makes what we're about to hear even more remarkable because, you know, as both of you know, there was a, a documentary made at the time Um of what was happening in Clinton, Tennessee, and Joanne Allen, who Joanne Allen Boyce now, who was Joanne Allen then, is in this documentary, uh, which we we found. So, here she is. Here you are, Joanne, a fourteen-year-old, describing uh, your first days at school in 1956. Monday morning. When we started to school, there were only a few people around, and I thought maybe, well, they just here to be curious, and they wanted to see us come in, and that they would leave later. But then, on the next day, when things, when more people came, and, and the, a young boy started walking with signs, I began to wonder and think, well, maybe they're not going to accept us like I thought they were. 
And um, on Wednesday morning, I almost tried to go back home because there were so many people. And they looked so mean. They, they looked like they didn't want us at all. I could just see their hate in their hearts. And when we got inside the school, most of the children were very nice to us. And then there were some, they uh, threw paper at us, and they shoved us in the halls, and they threw chalk at us, and said all sorts of nasty things. And it just made me feel bad, and I couldn't concentrate at all on my lessons. That's 14-year-old Joanne Allen Boyce in 1956. <laughs> How does it make you feel to hear that now? Well, um, it's interesting with me. I moved away in December of 56 mm-hmm. and came here to Los Angeles, which was, you know, totally different. Um, and um, I, I, I think about how I was treated uh, in Clinton and as opposed to how I was treated here in Los Angeles. And it still hurts, actually. Um, I didn't want to carry any hatred or or feelings about how we were treated then. I wanted to, uh, to be a person who rose above all of that because I felt like it would influence how I was, the kind of person I would grow up to be. And I still think that's true. Um, but when I think about when I go back to Clinton, actually on visits, and when I think about it, it still saddens me that we had to go through that, that any kid has to go through mm-hmm. that for, um, for any reason. For, and for us, it was primarily the color of our yeah. skin. You know, I, I hear you loud and clear when you say that you carry that pain, that it still hurts to this day, and you're 81 now. The other thing that I hear uh, in that recording of 14-year-old you is the true authentic confusion of a, of a, a young girl who's on the verge of womanhood, right, about yes. why. Because it makes no sense, right? Like right. why would the children who treated you okay the first day turn around and, you know, pour out all this hate? I mean, I think... That is that is still the fundamental question that we're we're grappling with as Americans today about racism, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, it's so true. It's it feels like we've gone back to that time. Instead of moving forward, it feels like we've, we're going backwards again, and um, that saddens me as well. And I, this is why I continue to speak out against segre, uh, not just segregation, but hatred. Hatred is something that eats at your soul. And um, I, I feel for the people who are haters. Um, I myself cannot bring myself to hate or dislike or, or even uh, think of people who mistreated me during that time mm. in a a, you know, vicious way. Um, as my father said, they were just n- not educated um, in the right way. Mm. Well, Joanne Allen Boyce, stand by here for just a second. And Rachel Louise Martin, I deeply appreciate you listening to Miss Boyce along with me. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what actually happened um, in Clinton, Tennessee, in just a minute. This is On Point. 
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the little-known story of desegregation in Clinton, Tennessee, in 1956. Rachel Louise Martin joins us. She's a historian whose new book is about this very issue. It's called A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. And Joanne Allen Boyce is also with us. She was one of the 12 black students who desegregated Clinton High School in August of 1956. Um, And I want to play a little bit more uh, of 14-year-old Joanne Allen uh, as she joins us today from Los Angeles. She's 81, so this is her back in 1956 talking to a reporter from CBS News with her father at her side, side, recounting what it was like to try and do schoolwork in the middle of violence and anger. During all the excitement, all the things that the people were doing, I was able to accomplish something. I made two A's and a B, and the only bad grade was a C, which isn't very bad, but I wish it had been an A or B one. Um, my teachers were very proud of me, and my parents were too, because they thought I did well, even through all the uh, strain that we did have to go through, because sometimes I couldn't keep my mind on my lessons for thinking about the people on the outside and what they were thinking of. Oh, Miss Boyce, hearing you lament your C just grabs my heart. It really does. (laughs) Now, you mentioned your father. So we have the voice of Herbert Allen, your father, talking about the family's decision to leave Clinton and move to California, as you said, in December of 1956. And he talks about how you didn't leave because only because of the unrest, but also for better opportunities that uh, he hoped uh, were to be found in California. We're not leaving here with hatred in our hearts against anyone, even those who uh, was against us. We do not hate those people because we realize that those people were just misled and uh, they was trained and brought up the way, that way. That's why that they were never un- able to understand. Now, the grace with which Herbert, Herbert Allen speaks of what was happening outside of the high school is remarkable because we need to talk frankly about how ugly the situation did turn. So here's the voice of Paul Turner. He was a white minister who decided to offer the black students some protection as they tried to enter the high school again um, in the days after that first day of desegregation. So he tried to walk them to high school. And as he left the school, he described how a group of men were waiting for him on a corner down the street. As I made my way to that corner, they jumped me. 
one man successfully held my arms down and allowed the number one man of their gang to uh, land a pretty good blow upon my nose. And immediately about eight to ten people were on our backs. Now, Rachel, it's time for us to describe in more detail about exactly what happened in those subsequent days and how ugly it turned. And I had mentioned, you know, the school getting blown up. So can you tell us more? Well, by the end of the week, there were thousands of folks in the streets around the high school and the county court. They were threatening to blow up the center of city government. They were threatening to blow up the mayor's house. Now, I do need to say... This is coal country, so there were lots of folks with dynamite, and it was a very common way that folks did any sort of labor protest, anything else like that. But it gets bad enough that the local white authorities form what they call their home guard. It's about 46 white men who are deputized on the spur of the moment and then sent out to guard the courthouse. At the same time that was happening, the black men who lived in the black neighborhood, which was called The Hill, organized their own home guard. Miss Boyce's dad was one of them who was up there, and they got any weapons they had and organized patrols because the Klan, the White Citizens Council, folks like that were riding through The Hill. Eventually they would begin bombing up on The Hill as well. In order to prevent absolute, an absolute massacre from happening, Tennessee's governor eventually sent in the highway patrol and then followed it up with the National Guard. Unlike Orville Faubus, who we heard at the beginning of this show, though, he did not send in the National Guard to prevent the black students from going to school. They ended up enabling the students to return to their classes and to continue this. At that point... The violence moved inside the school. The girls were continually harassed walking down the hallway. They'd have their ponytails pulled. Folks would step on the back of their heels until their their feet would bleed. Other kids were threatened with ice picks or with nooses. One one young woman was almost pushed out of a second story window onto the into the auditorium below, which would have badly, badly injured her. And so then that clip about Paul Turner, the students in, at the end of November say, the black students say, we will no longer go to school until we have protection. Mm-hmm. And the Reverend Paul Turner said, I will, I will protect you with my own body. And he walked them to school one morning through the middle of the rioters, along with two other local white men. The other two men were allowed to leave, but Paul Turner was jumped on his way to his church and and beaten pretty badly. Now, I will say one of the local CBS reporters or national CBS reporters who was there locally later said in a fair fight, Brother Turner would have won, but (laughs) it was not a fair fight. So he went down. He was he was pretty badly beaten up. Miss Boyce, can I ask you, um, the scene that Rachel's describing is uh, disturbing, to say the least. Do you remember uh, about the, the tensions and uh, the threat of violence that was carried into the black neighborhood, the, the hill? Uh, yes, I remember that uh, the Ku Klux Klan would drive through um, and uh, intimidate everyone in the neighborhood. Of course, uh, as Rachel mentioned, 
uh, the black men in our neighborhood um, set up their own sort of uh, let's you know to keep keep us safe. Um, so they laid out in the woods with uh, their guns, and uh, which was of course uh, no no because they weren't supposed to have guns, but they did, uh, including my father, who um, on one instance when the Ku Klux Klan came through, my father was standing in the front yard with a gun in his hand held down by his uh, side. He was not pointing the gun or anything. But when the Ku Klux Klan uh, went back downtown, they told on my father and said they saw him with his gun. And so the police officers came up to our home and uh, they arrested my father for having a gun. They arrested your father but did nothing about the Klan members who were... No. Coming no. through the neighborhood, okay. No, no, that was that was a no-no. The Klan could go wherever they wanted. Um, you know, we knew that the Klan uh, was made up with quite a few people uh, in Clinton who were in the government, but uh, there was not much we could do about that. Hmm. Okay. Well, here's one more voice from... Uh, from the school or the school uh, uh, administration himself. You're about to hear D.J. Britton Jr., who was the principal at Clinton High School in 1956. Now, uh, if I understand correctly, he was actually opposed to desegregation, but when Brown v. Board uh, was decided in the Supreme Court, he allowed the school eventually to to desegregate by 1956. And... Um, he ended up paying a price, and here's what he said. I can frankly say that I've uh, suffered nothing but personal harassment, uh, and other people too, my wife and teachers and students in the school or anybody that took a stand to obey the law. Uh, not necessarily that they agreed with it, but for myself, the first... Uh, Day and night, my telephone rang incessantly. I, I guess my life was uh, threatened 10 or 12 times by anonymous telephone callers who would all hang it up. Uh, I received letters, many through the mail. Uh, I, I received two today, uh, one of which was an unsigned letter, of course, which said that uh, they felt that uh, I was... a uh, low-down person and used other vile names and felt that uh, someone should throw acid in my face or in the face of someone in my family. Again, that was D.J. Britton, Jr., principal at Clinton High School in 1956. Rachel, do I have this right that both Britton and Reverend Turner later on ended up taking their own lives? That's correct, yes. They were both... Yes so broken by what happened to them at Clinton High and yes. and within their own families. Uh, Paul Turner's father sends him a letter saying, Paul, what have you done? How could you, you know, how could you do this? And um, none of, none of the white people in Clinton take a stand and say, we believe segregation is right at the beginning of 56. But there are a few people who say we will obey the law. And over the course of that year, 
begin to change their hearts, begin to change their minds, um, and, and really pay a high cost for what has happened. Yeah. And a, a few of them never recovered. Did um, now and and the the date that the school was actually dynamited? That's not until October of 1958. So trouble okay. continues for a long for years. time. For okay. years. Okay. For and, years. And just as a side note, we don't have enough time to go into this, but um, its its reconstruction was helped was organized with the aid of <laughs> Reverend Billy Graham. That is correct. Okay. It is this. It's the site of the smallest crusade he ever preached, and it was integrated. Another reason to encourage people to read your book because there's so many eye-opening moments here. But the fact that it went on for years, okay, uh, uh, in Clinton, continued to, I mean, divide the town is not even the right word. Just, um, you know, terrorize the town and 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 people living in it and the people doing the terrorizing are also residents of Clinton. I want us to hold that in our heads for a second because I got a really interesting email from um, a, uh, a non-point listener who lives in Oak Ridge that you had mentioned before, uh, Rachel, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, um, because Marion uh, Wildgruber point, pointed out to me in an email that the year before 1956, in 1955, President Eisenhower had actually ordered all government schools in Oak Ridge, and because it was there was a lot of government property there due to its uh, role in the in the Manhattan Project with the Atomic Energy Administration, he had ordered all government schools there to be integrated. And 85 uh, students actually went to Scarborough School. Uh, from Scarborough School, I should say. They were black students who went to Robertsville Middle School and Oak Ridge High School in the fall of 1955. It wasn't easy, let's put it that way, but there weren't the kind of protests or violence that we saw the year later in Clinton and then, of course, obviously in Little Rock and lots of other places in the South. So yeah. fascinating. I mean, was that... Oak, Oak Ridge was... Yeah. Well, it was, a, it was a federal institution. It was transitioning into being, you know, private property, a local community. In fact, they they start selling property and houses in Oak Ridge for the first time in 1956 during desegregation at Clinton High. So a lot of the people who would have protested at Oak Ridge don't feel like they can. They actually founded an organization that ended up being kind of the seed organization for what happened at Clinton High. Uh-huh. So, yes, Oak Ridge desegregates, and that action right there ends up helping to fuel the anger that takes place at Clinton High. I see. Well, we are un- rapidly and unfortunately approaching the end of the time we have for this conversation. So I have uh, another question for for each of you. And, and Rachel, let me start with you. Um you know, I'm still thinking about how Miss Boyce described that she carries the legacy yeah. of um, the violence and hatred that she had to endure to this day. Does the town of Clinton also still carry that legacy and residents who, who live there? Were they eager to talk to you about this or not? There were a few folks who were who were open and willing and, and eager to speak. Miss Boyce was one of them. I was... The conversation we had remains one of the most important conversations I've had in my career. Just the wisdom that I learned from her was unmatched. Um, But there were many other folks who said, uh, there was one founder of the Tennessee White Youth who said, honey, there was a lot of ugliness down there that year. It is best we just forget. Mm. 
the problem is we are facing the same problems today. What happened in Clinton was not a local story. It was a national story. The hatred in Clinton was not a Southern issue. It was a national issue. America's schools today are more segregated than they were in 1968. Mm-hmm. New York City is the most segregated school system in the nation, and they went under a desegregation ruling in 2015. Mm. The battle that Miss Boyce and the other 12 students launched in August of 1956 is one that we are still demanding our children fight right now in 2023. And that is inexcusable. We've had 70 years to take this on and and to begin to equalize opportunity and education for all of our kids. And we haven't done it. So I think the nation still bears these scars. Well, Ms. Boyce, you get the last word today. And unfortunately, we only have about 30 seconds left. What would you say to the people today who still would rather forget? You can't forget. It's important to remember um, what has happened in the past because, you know, the old saying that uh, you, you can repeat it, and it's definitely being repeated today. So we can't forget Well, Joanne Allen Boyce was one of the 12 black students who helped integrate Clinton High School in Clinton, Tennessee in 1956. She's written a book about her story. It's called This Promise of Change, One Girl's Story in the Fight for School Equality. Ms. Boyce, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. And Rachel Louise Martin, author of the new book, A Most Tolerant Little Town, The Explosive Beginning of School Desegregation. We have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Rachel, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you. This has been fantastic. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.